For those of you who've been following along, you'll remember that last week we looked at John's proclamation that the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. It became obvious that marriage was on the mind of John the Baptist, and John, the author of this book, wanted you to see that as well. He wanted you to be thinking and framing your mind around marriage. And before I read today's passage, I'd like to just preface it with three Old Testament stories. I'm not going to read it from the scriptures. I'm just going to give the facts of the story, and I think that you'll be able to connect those facts of the story immediately to see what John is doing here in this text today. In Genesis 24, Abraham sends his servant to a foreign land to find a wife for his son. He meets her at a well, and long story short, Isaac and Rebekah get married. Remember this right. Genesis 29, Jacob goes to a foreign land and meets Rachel at a well, and long story short, they get married. In Exodus 2, Moses goes to a foreign place and meets Zipporah, at a well, and long story short, they get married. Now I'm going to read for you today's passage and see if you can make some connections here. The text is John 4, 1 through 30, a famous passage about Jesus and the woman at the well. John chapter 4, verse 1 through 30. These are the words of God. Let's give attention to them this morning. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to her, Sir, you have nothing to draw the water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying you have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. 
for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then the disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with the woman, and no one said, What do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. The word of the Lord for his people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have not left us without your word, that you have not left us without guidance. Father, we pray this morning that as we open up your word that you would instruct us in your word. We pray that the same Holy Spirit that inspired these words would now inspire us, that my preaching would be in power and demonstration of the gospel, preaching Christ and him crucified. Lord, I pray that if there's anything that I say this morning that is not of your word, not what you want these people sitting here this morning to hear, I pray that it would go in one ear and right out the other. Father, we want to center ourselves on your son Jesus this morning, so tune our hearts to see you clearly. Help us to hear you, see you, and meditate on you this morning. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Now, when you watch a Hollywood film, most of you are familiar that there are certain cues that you get as you're watching that kind of trigger your ear or your eye to see what is going on or what is about to happen, but it might not be the the main point of the movie. For instance, in Jaws, you hear the da-dum. Right, you know something bad is about to happen. In the Hallmark movies, you see that there's this jovial music playing, and the girl's kind of bobbing along, and then she bumps into someone, and she drops all her stuff, probably books, and you know that's the person she's going to end up marrying at the end of the movie. <laughs> right, you know that like there's these cues that you get that kind of frame our thinking about what is happening, and it helps you think about what is happening in the story. So while this bridal theme is here in John's Gospel, the larger theme that I want to look at today is that Jesus is seeking for something. And we know that it's a bride, but it's it's more than just a bride. It's a particular aspect of the bride. The bride wears many hats in Scripture, doesn't she? There's all kinds of ways that Scripture talks about the bride. But what we're going to look at here this morning is that Jesus is seeking true worshipers. So the bride is seen as a true worshiper. And we'll see that Jesus goes out of his way to save us even when we're going out of our way to not be seen by him. We hide ourselves from him. We don't want to be known by God. And yet, Jesus seeks us out. The Father seeks true worshipers. So we're going to look at a couple things this morning. For instance, how does he seek? How does God seek us? Why does he need to seek? Why does the Father need to seek us? And what is it that Jesus is actually seeking? What does it mean by true worshipers? Those are some of the things that we're going to look at. But let's first start with how does he seek? How does Jesus seek in this particular story in John chapter 4? Well, right off the bat, we can see that Jesus is taking the messy route. He's going through Samaria. Samaria. And strict Jews, such as Pharisees, would avoid contact with the Samaritans as much as possible and take a much longer route. This tradition tells us that the, the, the rabbis would go way out of the way just so they don't have to talk to these Samaritans. But Jesus apparently isn't as rigid as some of the rabbis of his day. He's a little bit looser than they are. He's willing to just go straight in through Samaria and deal with whatever comes his way. So his pursuit is 
strategic. He's saying, I'm not going to go way out of my way to, to go around where these Orthodox Jews normally go. I'm going to go right through the mess of it. So it might have, in, in a Jew's mind, been more practical from a discipleship uh, perspective to go out of the way because that's where all the Orthodox Jews are, right? Jesus is going to have a lot more in common with them, so discipleship should be easier there. He should get more converts and so on. But Jesus, that's not how he thinks. He thinks, you know what? I'm just going to go right through the mess of Samaria. There's going to be people there that are needing to hear from me, that need to hear these conversations that I'm going to have with them, and I'm going to pursue them and go straight towards the messy route. So, how does he seek? He seeks by taking the messy route. How else? Well, he speaks to a woman. Now, in our context today, this doesn't really make much sense. So, big deal. Jesus is talking to a woman. Well, another rabbinic attitude was that a man would never be alone with a woman other than his wife in his day. It was a little bit scandalous for Jesus to even be talking with this woman. And John makes the point for you to see this in verse 8 to say that his disciples left. In other words, it's just Jesus and this woman sitting there. He, he's clearly breaking what we now call the Billy Graham rule. Have you guys heard of that before? The Billy Graham rule. Uh, Billy Graham said as a minister he never wanted to be alone with another woman because it would give the appearance of something that he didn't want. But, but what Jesus is doing here is he's, he's actually breaking that rule. He's not abiding by the Billy Graham rule. Then in verse 27, you can see that when his disciples returned, which again makes the point that he was alone with her, they marveled that he was speaking with a woman. Why are you doing this, Jesus? Don't you know what that looks like? Don't you know the, the appearance that you're giving to other people? They're thinking. So not only was he alone with this woman, not only was he conversing with her and talking with her, but he even asks her for a drink, and he wants to drink from the same cup that she is drinking from. This would have been very scandalous. right? And Jesus knows her, her reputation. He knows who this woman is, right? He's calling her out later. We, we see that. So Jesus knows exactly who, he is, who he's dealing with, and yet he goes so far as to say, I want to drink from your cup, right? Scandalous what he's doing. Now, the rabbis of his day, think about what they were doing compared to what Jesus was doing. What Jesus is doing is pretty radical. The rabbis of his day, they guarded their character by not associating with anyone of a bad reputation. But Jesus... He revealed his character by associating with those who have a bad reputation. He eats with sinners and tax collectors, they said. And Jesus, he's happy about it. He's fine with that. He doesn't care. Because at the end of the day, what they think doesn't matter. Their opinions aren't swaying him. It doesn't matter because Jesus is on mission. He's seeking true worshipers. So how else does he seek? Well, he's dealing with a Samaritan, it says in verse 9. He isn't afraid of those hard conversations that he'll have along the way. They're going to be awkward, yes. They're going to feel a little bit weird. But he's ready to just go towards, this, uh, to, towards the disagreement, towards the tension with these divergent Samaritans. Now, you might be asking yourself in your mind, well, who are these Samaritans? We've been talking about Samaritan women and Samaria. What is going on here? What are the Samaritans or who are the Samaritans? Well, the Samaritans actually professed, believe it or not, to worship the same God that the Jews did. They worshipped Yahweh. So they had the same God in common, but what their differing views were were on the location of worship and how worship should be conducted. You can see this in verse 20 when it says, Our fathers, so she's, she's claiming to have the same fathers as Jesus. She says, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now, this mountain that she's referring to is Mount Gerizim. And they had actually built a temple on Mount Gerizim in, uh, in uh, 400 B.C. 
So they built their own temple there, and she's saying, we think we should worship here. You think we should worship in Jerusalem. So they have this tension between them two. But that temple that they built, that the Samaritans built, actually burned to the ground in 128 B.C. And you would think, well, now their temple's gone. They might as well just join the Jews in Jerusalem, right? No. They were still stubborn enough to say, no, we will not worship with the Jews in Jerusalem. So they never really had this reconciliation. There's this tension between the Samaritans and the Jews that is even present here in Jesus' conversation, and he's going right towards it. He's going towards the contention. So rather than tiptoe around all the issues, he actually just confronts it. He says in verse 22, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Now think about that. How, how off-putting that would be for someone to come up to you and basically say, you don't know what you're talking about. You think you know how to worship. You don't know anything about worship. We Jews, we know how to worship. We've got it all together. We understand worship. Now, why is he willing to step on her toes? Is it because Jesus just loves to be quarrelsome? He loves a good fight? No, it's because he actually loves her. And sometimes hard conversations are done in love, but it's not very comfortable. Right? And this is what Jesus is doing here. He's not doing this because he hates her. He's actually pursuing her heart. He's trying to get on the same page as her. And we need to learn something from this. We need to learn that we need to be able to take a little bit of uncomfortable conversation sometimes to get on the same page. So don't assume that if someone draws the line in your life, like Jesus does, that they're just after you. What they're actually after is your heart. They're not just trying to get you. They might actually just be trying to reconcile and make things work. Right? Think about marriage and the ways that we sometimes have disagreements. Sometimes the best thing to do is actually just confront the issue. Right? If we tiptoe all around it, it just gets bigger and bigger. The problem does. So we have to confront it. And this is what Jesus is doing here. It wasn't an easy pill for this woman to swallow, but it's actually what she needed to hear. She needed to be confronted with the truth. So we learn this solid lesson that Jesus is seeking us, and sometimes this is uncomfortable. We want to squirm and wiggle our way out of the awkwardness, but if we're honest, we can see that he's doing it in love. Jesus is loving this woman by doing this, and this opens us up to his loving pursuit. We need to be open to Jesus loving us, which brings us to our next question. Why does he need to seek us? Why does God need to seek you? Well, it's because what we just kind of talked about. We squirm, don't we? Sometimes when God's coming after us, we don't really like it at the moment. We Conceptually, yes, we love it. We, we all nod our heads, yes, Jesus seeks us, and we're ready to just hug him. But in the moment, like we don't really feel that way, do we? It's, it's hard. People by nature do not want to be known by God. They are, they are running away from God. We don't want to be found out by God. Like Adam and Eve, we kind of run to the bushes, we hear Jesus coming, and we run. We cover ourselves with fig leaves. We let shame and guilt keep us away from God. Romans says it this way. It says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. Catch this. No one seeks God. So why does God need to seek us? Because we're not seeking him. No one will seek God. Not one. God has to come to us because we are running away from him so often. He must seek us because we're not going to come find him. Now look at the way that this woman does this very thing in this text. She's trying to evade the light. The light has come into the world, and she's looking at it right in the face, and she doesn't like it. She came to a well at high noon, and this is about 12 o'clock, so think about that. The sixth hour is what it said in, in Jewish time. That means it's noon. 
So think about the son just beating down. She's coming here just so that she doesn't have to uh, uh, confront other people. She's probably avoiding other women. The, the other women of her day, they would have came early in the morning or late in the afternoon. That's when you would go because it's cooler. That time, that's the time of the day that you want to go fetch your water. Now, why doesn't she go at that time? Because women love to gossip. But they don't love to gossip when it's about themselves, right? They don't want to be in that conversation. If all the women are around you and they're talking about that woman and you're that woman, you don't want to be there when that's happening, right? So, so she's going at this time of day just so she doesn't have to deal with these awkward conversations about her past and probably present situation. She's got a reputation and she's running from it. So Jesus tried to strike up a conversation and she just wants out. She doesn't want to talk about it. She essentially says, why are you talking to me? You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. Let's just go our separate ways. Like, we don't need to talk. Let's just do what we need to do. I'm here to get water. You get your water, and then we'll go. But Jesus, he's persistent. He wants to talk. He wants to have a conversation. And then he goes straight for the jugular and says, go call your husband. Go call your husband. Think about how her heart probably just dropped when Jesus said this. How does he know about that? I've never even seen this man. Has, has he been talking to the other women that have been at this well? Right? They're, he knows something that she wasn't expecting. And internally, you know that she's squirming. You know she would just jump in that well if that wasn't even more awkward. right? She would just try to hide and do anything she could. And we do these same things, don't we? Right? When we're confronted with the truth, so many times in our shame and guilt, we dodge the confrontation and we just want to hide under a rock when someone brings up that topic in your life. And I don't know all the topics in your life, but you know them. They're probably coming to your mind right now and you're thinking, wow, I would not want someone to say that to me. I would not want someone to bring this up because then I would have to face that issue. Now, why do people not want to face the issue? Why don't they want to be known by God? Why don't they want to, to, to come face to face with someone that they know is good? Right? They know that God is good. They know that, that there's a better way and yet they don't want to be seen. Well, there's two reasons that I think uh, that we can see. Number one is guilt. Number two is pride. These two things really, really hang us up. Guilt, because we're scared that God will condemn us. We look at God through the, through the lens of law, and we know that we're convicted. We know that we stand guilty. So when we think about God in that, that divine court with him being the judge, we know that we are a dead man or woman. Right? We don't deserve to live, and we don't want to face that truth. So we see only law and not grace when we walk in guilt. The other way is pride. Now, how does pride keep us from confronting God? Well, because in pride, we want our own way. We don't want God to tell us what to do. We don't care about his law. We want to do what we want to do, and we want to keep on going about our way because it feels good. right? That thing that you don't want to be confronted about, you keep doing it because it feels good. Right? It, you get a little bit of pleasure from it, but it's not fully satisfying either. So you have this tension of wanting to give it up, but not so much that you won't actually give it up. Right? Right? You're, you're kind of stuck in the middle, and this is pride. So we want to live our lives according to our own standards and, and decide what is worthy of our time and attention. What is worthy of your time and attention? And what this comes down to is worship. This is where Jesus is going to in this passage. He wants to talk about worship. Worship, at its basic etymological definition, simply means worthship. That's actually what the old English word was, worthship. So what is worth your time? What is worth your energy? What is, what is worth you giving yourself up for? So what kind of worshiper are you going to be? 
is the real question. What kind of worshipper, we might say it like that, are you? That's where Jesus is going. Do you give worth to things that point to yourself in pride? Or do you give worth to things that glorify the Son, that glorify Jesus in the way that you live your life? Because that's what worship really comes down to. Our lives are a life of worship. So that brings us to our next point. What is it that Jesus is actually seeking? Well, it tells us in our text, in verse 23, it says that he is seeking true worshipers. Verse 23 says, But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. It couldn't be any more clear. He's searching for true worshipers. But what is a true worshiper? Well, it tells us in spirit and in truth. That's what it means to worship in uh, or to worship in spirit and truth is what a true worshiper is. Uh, verse 24 says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. <clears throat> now, I'll be honest about this. This phrase, in spirit and truth, has actually caused me a little bit of um, mental hang-up. I've had a hard time trying to figure out what it means in connection with worship. What does Jesus really mean when he says worship in spirit and in truth? There's all kinds of things that it could mean, but I've had a hard time trying to nail down what exactly is Jesus saying here, that true worshipers worship in spirit and in truth. And I've, I've got a little bit closer this week, but I'll be honest, I don't know exactly what he's saying still. I'm still learning. But it's commonly thought that the point that Jesus is making is that since God is spirit, because it says that, this means that worship didn't have to be localized, right? It didn't have to be in a certain place anymore. People think that that's what Jesus' point is, that is, it doesn't have to be in Jerusalem anymore. That's the whole point. Now, many think that Jesus is bringing a new teaching about how we worship in contrast to where we worship, right? They say, well, it's about how we worship. Where we worship, that, that doesn't matter. But this is actually not the case. God has always been spirit, right? So he hasn't changed with Jesus coming. So this wouldn't have been significant or meaningful at all, really, in relation to the temple, which they were just talking about in verse 20 and 21. Remember, she says, we worship here. You say we should worship here. We built our temple here. You built yours here. So which one is right? Which one is the right location? So Jesus's point isn't that we have always had direct access to the Father because he's spirit. That's actually not what he's saying. It's the complete opposite. The point is that God is spirit, pure spirit, and therefore present in his own realm. God is in a place that we can't really get to him. So if man is to worship God, he must do it on God's terms in some kind of transcendent way where the physical could touch the metaphysical. right? Where these two would come together. How could this be done? Well, of course, in the Old Testament, they had... The temple. The temple was where the glory would dwell, where man could meet with God and the two could come together. And that's why Jesus is talking about the temple here, because that was the place, that was the localized position where that would happen. So Jesus' point here is that access is no longer through the temple in Jerusalem. It's in the temple in Jesus. Because Jesus is the new temple where heaven and earth meet, where the physical makes contact with the metaphysical, where God and man commune together and are one. Right? We, we learned about this in John 2, and John makes the point to say that Jesus is, is storming into the temple. He drives him out with a whip, and he says, tear down this temple, and in three days I'll rise it up. And it says what? That he was referring to the temple of his body. So John's point here and Jesus' point is that true worship happens in Jesus. 
in Christ because Jesus is the new temple. Worship must take place in Jesus. So the question really, though, is how does this look practically? How do we actually worship in Christ, which Paul says all through his epistles? In Christ, in Christ. How do we do this? Well, we do it in Christ. What's one way of saying that that's the way that we worship. That's the way that we live our lives. So how we relate to God, we might say how we worship controls our patterns of living. It controls the way that we live. There's fundamentally two ways that we can approach God. There's law and gospel. We've talked about this a lot before, so I'm not going to beat a dead horse. But these, these two ways of living are contrasting to each other. You can live under the law, which will cause shame. And it'll cause you to live in exhausting and really deadly ways. You cannot live that way in your life. It will be the end of you. Now, the woman at the well, when she came to the well, this is the way that she was living. She was living under the law, and she came this way to evade attention. She's trying to get out of the way so people aren't seeing her. She's tiptoeing around all the conversations with Jesus so as to not talk about her sins. She doesn't want to talk about her reputation. She just wants to hide. Now, let me ask you, church, this morning, what ways have you lived like this? In shame and in guilt, living under the law. If you look at the patterns of your life, you can find ways that you live in shame because you don't want to be found out, can't you? I don't know the ways that you do that because they're sneaky, right? (laughs) Just like this woman. She's thinking that she's being slick, saying, I don't have a husband, right? She's, She's dodging the questions. She's not wanting to go there. So ask yourself, do you have hidden truths about yourself that you will do anything, and I mean anything, to keep people from talking about it? Or to maybe go there with God, you just aren't going to go there. You think about it every week when we do that individual confession of sin, that thing pops up and you just like, not today, not this week. We're not going to go there. Is that you? Is there a thing in your life that you keep coming back to where you're living under the law? I don't know what it is. There's all kinds of things. You could give examples. Maybe, maybe you had an abortion early in life. That awful thing that everyone talks about. And you even think it's awful. right? You, you hate that you did it. But you keep living a life in accordance with the law that says, I'm a murderer. I'm a killer. And you're unwilling to allow grace to speak into your life to say, no, you don't have to be that anymore. You can have a new identity in Christ. You can move forward and live your life. You could be freed to worship in Christ where you're no longer identified with your sin, but you're identified with Christ. Right? This is, it gets really practical. I don't know what the things are in your life. Maybe, who knows what it is? I could go through a long list of things where, where you're becoming identified with this wrong thing that you did, and it actually really hangs you up when it comes to worship here on Sunday. We're just living your life practically because you won't give that thing up because you keep living under the law. So how we approach our worship towards God in law, how, how, if we do this, what we're going to be dealing with is constant exhaustion. We're going to be tired all the time. You're going to be spiritually fatigued. You just don't even want to go to church. You don't want to read your Bible. You don't want to do this. You don't want to do that because you're tired. Now, there's another way to live, and that's living under the gospel. Living in Christ. What does this mean? Well, living in Christ is going to cause you to act in all kinds of liberating ways, life-giving ways. This is why Jesus says, I've come to give you life and life abundantly. I want you to be able to just move forward. To go and live your life. And this is why Jesus offered this gift of living water right up front and not towards the end. Right off the bat, he's talking to this woman. Hey, if you knew who I was, you'd be taking a drink from me and I'd give you something that was really going to change things. 
It's going to radically change your life forever. Now let's look at that for a moment. That, that gift that he says he's going to give, he says is living water. This living water, think about what we've looked at so far in John. What could this living water be that aligns with John's whole message? What's the new birth? Right? He's talking about this thing that wells up inside you, he says. This spiritual reality that comes about by nothing that you could do, but it's a gift given to you, and it's going to free you to live your life, to be able to, to live a life in the kingdom. He says that the water I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Doesn't this sound like Jesus saying you must be born of water and spirit? Right? It's the same kind of thing. Jesus is, is consistent in his teaching. He says different words sometimes, but his fundamental message is, is the same. You must be born again. If you're going to move forward in life, to see the kingdom of God, to be able to live your life, you have to live in Christ. And you're only going to do that by being completely born again with a new reality, a spiritual reality. Now, this woman, she's concerned with the externals, isn't she? She's not really thinking spiritually. She's talking about physical water. She's talking about a pail to fetch physical water, a physical pail. She's talking about physical distance to carry this water. I'm tired. I don't want to go back and forth here every day. She's talking about physical worship on this physical mountain, all these physical things. She's just looking at the externals. And Jesus says, no, no, no. The water is welling up in you, not outside of you. What I'm talking about is something a little different. It's a little cryptic, but I want you to follow along is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, no, living water. It's not stagnant water in a well. This is living water, and it's welling up in you. It's a, a spiritual faith that I'm talking about. Notice he says that this, this water, or that he doesn't have anything to fetch this water with. And I think this is important because we've talked about the new birth and how we just can't do it ourselves. right? We can't bring ourselves into a new spiritual existence. We can't birth ourselves. And Jesus makes the same point to say this here. I don't even have anything to fetch this water with. It's just going to come as a gift. Right? She says, you don't have anything to do it. He's like, that's not a problem. With God, all things are possible. So, right? Same kind of teaching. So he's talking about living water, spiritual faith, spiritual worship, spiritual closeness that transcends that physical travel. It's deeper than what she thinks. This gift of living water is what we need in order to be liberated and walk in eternal life under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. You must be born again. Now, I said a moment ago that how we relate to God, our worship, controls our patterns of living. And I want you to look at the transformation of this woman in this story as she shifted from living under the law to living under Christ. She, she has a transformation that actually happens within the conversation. If you follow the narrative in, in chronological order, which we haven't been doing, by the way. I've been all over the place. I realize that. But, but you'll notice that after, she, uh, after Jesus tells her about the true worshipers, she essentially says, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the Messiah, he's going to come. He's going to sort this all out. Who really knows what's right? That's kind of the way she's saying it. It's kind of a resignation to say, I don't know. You don't know, but I know someone that does know. He's the Messiah, but he hasn't come yet. So he's, he'll figure it out when he gets here. And what Jesus says, how he responds is essentially, I do know. And I know because I am he. I am the one that is to come. I am the Messiah. And by the way, earlier when you said, are you greater than Jacob, our father? The answer to that question is actually yes. I am. I have the authority to speak into your life right now. I am the Messiah. That's what he's saying. And what's her response? How does she respond to the Messiah speaking to her? Verse 28 says this. So the woman left her water jar. That's significant. And went away into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Can this be the Christ? Is he here? I, I, I believe I've just met our Savior. 
Look at that. Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Think about the woman that we're talking about here and what she just said. How is this good news that a man came and told me everything I ever did? This is only good news if it's in light of the gospel and salvation. No guilty person runs out of the courthouse after being convicted and confronted with the law and the judge who told them everything they ever did. And they said, guess what? I just met a guy that told me everything I ever did. He told me I'm a murderer. He told me I did this. He told me I did that. And I'm going to jail forever. Right? No one does that. No one walks out of meeting the judge who is convicted, who is guilty, and proclaims, I just met the guy who figured it all out. Right? <laughs> they don't say that. This is, that. That would be bad news because the law would condemn us. But she just met the Christ. She just met a whole radically different way of living. She encountered the one who offered her life despite her sins. Despite her five husbands, despite all that she'd ever done, it didn't matter anymore because that didn't define her. Something else did. So this woman went from shame and hiding her past to proclaiming it to everyone. Think about that shift. Before, she did not want anyone to see her, so she went out to the well at high noon, the hottest part of the day. She's making herself miserable living this way. But it's worth it to her because she doesn't have to be seen. So her, her shame literally, physically made her life harder than it needed to be. Now think about your own life. Is, have you done things like that? Made your life miserable just because you're trying to evade the light? But, but the freedom in Christ literally, physically made her life easier. She didn't have to endure the emotional baggage of hiding her sin or going way out of the way for water. And speaking of emotional baggage, I said that was important that she left her jar. What does that mean? What could we read there? Well, John makes the point to say that she left her jar. And I think that that jar represents something. I think it represents a way of living that she wasn't going to go back to. A way of living under the law. She, was, or she now had a spring of life welling up in her. She didn't need to go back to the, the baggage. She didn't have to do that. Why? Because she had something with her, inside her, welling up to eternal life. Enabling her to live her life and to worship the way that she needed to. If you don't need a water jar to dip into the well, why carry it? Why carry that around? If you have a spring of life that transforms the way that you live your life, this will make your life way less burdensome. So don't pick it back up. It's a lesson for us too. Don't fall back into doing those same old patterns, the, the carrying around the baggage. So as we close this morning, I'd like to, to do a small spiritual exercise. And, it, and since it's a spiritual exercise... I'd encourage you, I'm not going to make you, uh, to close your eyes, uh, to, to just think through this. And I want you to mentally and, and emotionally and even psychologically to go here. So what I want you to do is I want you to go to your well. That, that, that thing in your soul that you keep returning to to give you life, but you keep running out. Right? You keep getting thirsty. Now think of your water jar. What baggage do you carry around to help you dip into this well that never really satisfies? What are those patterns in your life that you keep going back to that don't really fix the problem? They just kind of help you get around the bigger problem of that, that sin that you're unwilling or whatever it is, that shame, that guilt, that thing that has caused you a huge problem, that well that doesn't satisfy. What ways have you carried around that baggage, that proverbial water jar? Now, you're at the well. And I want you to meet Jesus at that well. I want you to allow him to speak, speak frankly to you, 
He's going to tell you, no, 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 you don't have to do this. You don't have one husband. You don't, you don't have just have just one. You have five. And you haven't just coddled this one anxiety, this one shame, this one guilt. It's deeper than that. right? That well is deeper than you even thought it was. Now, you need to confront the truth just like this woman did. But realize that this is, this is Jesus speaking to you in love. That he wants to actually help you through this, to, to care for you. And what he's doing, he's actually seeking you because he's seeking a bride. He's seeking a particular kind of bride, and that is a true worshiper. He wants a bride that is genuine, not just external, not just going through the motions in marriage. He wants a bride that has actually wrapped her heart around her husband. That's the kind of bride that the Savior seeks. Now, if you're, if you're following this exercise, you're confronting Christ himself by faith right now. And Jesus said in our passage, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So since you know what the living water is, we talked about that, why don't you ask Christ for a drink? Why don't you ask the Savior if he would give you a drink of that, that living water? He says if, if you ask, he would have given it. He'll give it to you. Now take a drink of that living water by faith and see if you aren't ready to do what this woman did and go share with the world. Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. It doesn't even matter. I had this sin that I was holding close for years. I wouldn't let anyone see it. But I met Jesus, and he allowed me to just let go of it. It didn't define me anymore. And by meeting him, it changed me forever. Church, Jesus is seeking a bride. He's seeking a genuine bride, and he's pursuing your heart to do it. He doesn't just want to whip you in order and get you to just follow the right external things. He wants your heart. He truly does want you to live your life abundantly, but he wants you to live it with him, and he wants you to be honest and real with him. He wants a true worshiper. Now, if, you've already, if you already have this well, you've already dipped into it, and you, you drink of it, don't go back to the jar. Right? There's many of us, most of us, I would say, have already had this well springing up inside of us, and yet we so often we keep going back to the jar. We want to pick it back up. We already have a well in us springing up, but we still kind of sometimes want to go back to those old ways. Don't do that, church. Recognize what you've been given, the gift of eternal life, the gift of a, a well springing up in you. And if you haven't had that gift, church, if there's anyone here this morning who has never experienced that, please talk with me after service. I would love to walk with you through this. That you'd be able to take a drink of that eternal life, that living water that will satisfy forever. You'll never thirst again, Jesus says. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.